0: This is a podcast from the Poetry Society.
1: If you say, right, I will write, uh, you know, a poem for every wildflower in Fife or all the regional cheeses of Galloway or whatever, you know, and you think, if you start off with something grandiose, you only get two or three haiku out of it, but at least you got something. It's worth aiming for the peak, even if you know you're just likely to get no further than the foothills, I think, you know. There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man.
0: My name is Colette Bryce, poet and guest editor of the Winter 2019 issue of The Poetry Review. I'm delighted to have with me today one of our finest poets working internationally, Don Patterson. Don Patterson is the author of Nil Nil, which was winner of the Forward Prize for Best First Collection, God's Gift to Women, winner of both the T.S. Eliot Prize and the Geoffrey Faber Memorial Award, and Landing Light, which won both the Eliot Prize and the Whitbread Prize for Poetry. Rain appeared in 2009 and the same year Don Patterson was awarded the Queen's Gold Medal for Poetry. He has also published versions of Antonio Machado and Rilke's Orpheus, as well as two collections of aphorisms. Forty Sonnets, winner of the Costa Prize in 2015, zoomed in on a form that has obsessed the poet for many years. And a weighty tome or treatise on poetic process, the poem, Lyric, Sign and Meter, appeared Last year, Don. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. That rather long list of publications isn't even complete, but uh, you'd be forgiven if it made you sound a bit longer in the tooth than you actually are. You're not <laughs> actually that old, a poet. I mention that because the poem we've published in the Poetry Review this winter, "The Way We Wear," features a character who is perhaps unreconciled to the aging self. Would you mind? Starting us off by reading the poem?
1: Sure, yeah. The way we were. Having made the error of finally agreeing to lunch with Elle, what had it been, 23 years? Let's say the horror was mutual. That's a lie. She was still beautiful. Her shock was ill-disguised, though. Thereafter, I stayed home. God, what I'd give to be yesterday's man again. I missed those long afternoons with a dead phone, with a martini that never seemed to shrink. I told Jarvis that I should not be disturbed, retreated to my den, hooked the shutters and took up my station in what my wife used to call the loser's couch, the one with a built-in surround, before she left with the dogs. I loaded up a bunch of psychogram loops, turned on the wall screen and settled back. Initially, I confess, mostly with my pants around my knees, watching old drunken one-night stands or those first dates when the two of you, still strangers, went further than you'd ever dare again. God damn, who was that handsome young buck? Though I worried about ageing even then. Mostly the loops ran in 16K and some had enough 3D data to front form VR so I could watch them with a headset. So much to see that I missed at the time. The couple fighting over money in the corner. The wood pigeon and the branch outside the bedroom. The flailing elm in the window in the eight ball. And I could wind back as far as I liked. I recall when I was imaged last year... The nomographer remarked on what must have been the generally rapt quality of my attention, as if I'd known the day would come when I'd be doing nothing else. Anyone using the phrase making memories unironically should be shot in the head unless they only have a year to live and their kids are very young. Still, I was glad I had. I blew the last cheque from the streaming revenue for half-lives on Jarvis's severance, a year's worth of IV neutral I could just piss back out, and three new modules for my Nemo sync that would allow me A. to re-render the loops as first person. Our memories are all of someone else. B. to sub out my Kano type from a paleo type. And C. to implant active AI in up to five simultaneous agents within any given scene. Armed with all this, I could insert my waking self directly back into those bright vignettes which I could not only play and replay forever, but live within, as in a lucid dream. I should probably mention at this point that I was always an early adopter. The guy too keen to download the beta, or camping on the sidewalk to be first in line for his half-working piece of shiny crap. I guess I love the future. It holds such promise. It just always turns up a bit too early, a bit too good to be true. The failure at the lab to calibrate the self-imaging algo meant that the star of my home movies kept flicking between then me and now me, leaving me in a narcoplegic lock until it self-corrected. Because I could now only see myself from the inside out, the effect was initially comic, me stuck on the park slide with the parents yelling, get that old wino off there, or my liver-spotted hand up in the air, proudly answering a Times table quiz for Mrs Garland. Others were just depressing. That day at the lyder with mum and dad, thirty years older than them both, the two of them trying to locate a facial expression of tender revulsion and failing and failing. Or that first kiss with Elle at the hedge behind her house and her, sixteen, like apple blossom, her mouth pliant and cool with cheap white wine, springing back in horror at the white beard with the loose teeth and the tongue down her throat. Worse was looking down at her naked bodies latched like some sick white crab, praying she wouldn't open her eyes before I could waken my hand and the escape key. Yet I am looking back on these as the best of times, as for days now I've been locked in a two-second glitch loop where I am stuck with my mouth and the full breast of my young beautiful mother who looks down at me and will not stop screaming and screaming.
0: Wonderful, Don. I'm intrigued, as I'm sure our listeners are going to be, to know more about this new collection, which looks to be a departure in several ways. I know from the notes to the book that there's a connection with the Twilight Zone. Could you start there and just tell us a little bit about the genesis of the collection?
1: Yeah, I mean, who was it said that, you know, sort of writing a poem is a way of forgetting how you came to write it. I mean, the whole Mm book's like that. I can barely remember, but I think it was that sort of desperate sense of having to do something different. Not a being stuck exactly, but realising the things that you want to write about, but a different approach was required. And for heaven knows what reason I started re-watching old episodes of This White Light Zone. And I thought, I wonder how it would be, you know the way you have these grand schemes, if I tried to write a poem for every episode of the first season. So I did. But I ended up discarding, I think, about A good third of them or so that weren't really up to snuff.
0: How many episodes are there in the first season? That's 1959. About
1: 30 or something like that, you know. So I think I did about two thirds of them. I suddenly realised, for whatever reasons, it was providing me with a kind of license to be quite free with my own autobiography and to say things that were both true and not true. And I think license is the word that offered me a certain kind of magic realist, fantastic license to... Say things. (laughs) No, I I love
0: how you've put that. You've put a little note to the collection. You say they are, for the most part, experiments in science fiction or fantastic autobiography and monologue, and they take great liberties with the source material of my own life. I plead that their frequent tone of too much information should not be mistaken for confession. It isn't, except on those occasions when it is. I know. It's, sure. I, I mean, I can't
1: stand folk that write notes like that in front of their books. But I mean, but it, it seemed fairly accurate. And it wasn't just about plausible deniability, though it was.
0: Yeah. I, think, I, mean, I like the question. confessional
1: tone, but I don't like the fact that within the confessional tone, you're obliged to confess. I like the rhetorical stance, but it's the content I struggle with, you know? Some of it's true and some of it's blethers.
0: It's a question we tend to get asked a lot, and poets are notoriously slippery around that um, time. You know what
1: I mean? It's space. also kind of having that expectation gives you a lot of license to kind of subvert that idea that people just assume that what you're saying is true. Yeah. So, and, and it's allowed to be both true and not and you're not cheating anybody out of anything.
0: Which is incredibly but, freeing and I, you've had a lot of fun from what I can see from a 1st week. Some through. fun, some tears, <laughs>
1: <laughs> some trauma.
0: Sometimes, as you say, we have these big ideas Oh, why don't I write a poem about every star in this constellation or, Aye, yeah. and you never do it. Well, so
1: sometimes that, you can trick yourself because, it's a good way. So if you say right, I will write uh, you know a poem for every wildflower and Fife or all the regional cheeses of Galloway or whatever you know. And you think if you start off with something grandiose, you only get two or three haiku out of it, but at least you got something. <laughs> yeah. You know. So uh, sometimes it's um it's worth aiming for the peak, even if you know you're just likely to get no further than the foothills. I think you know.
0: I think I'm going to ask you a little more about the actual writing in a minute, but I thought just for now, could we stay with the Twilight Zone a little bit? Can you remember which episode? of the original series that that one was prompted by? Barely.
1: It was quite early in the season. My story departs quite drastically and goes about kind of Black Mirror and whereas, you know, the details of that story are quite contemporaneous. But I remember it was an actress whose career has seen better days and she disappears into this nostalgic reviewing of her greatest hits and eventually appears inside the camera itself and literally just lives inside her own
0: there are real sh- shades of Norma Desmond, I suppose, in that yeah, that yeah. idea. I like the fact that this, you know, projection room that she would have had back then—that was sort of height of technology. That's right. Not yeah, many that people. That was, exactly. It was. It was could high have done in that, tech yeah. back
1: then. And I thought, how would that be, you know, in forty years' time or whatever? What would that look like? You know?
0: And then the great irony, of course, of this futuristic technology in your poem, allowing someone to completely retreat into the past and into memory.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the trouble is, it's within sniffing distance. That stuff. It's not impossible that we'll be able to do that, you know. And knowing me, I will be the first queuing outside the shop for something that doesn't <laughs> quite work yet, you know. It's just like
0: In some ways, I'm the worst person to interview you on any technological subject because I'll be the last adopter, you know. The oh, late. I'm
1: not a tech head. I'm just sort of charmed by novelty. I think you know.
0: There's a. Very dark comedy going on there with this character who's absolutely trapped in the the space of the screen. I felt going through the book that although there is lots of humour woven in, there's a very kind of light patter sometimes to the the narrator's voice. There's a lot of very dark stuff turned over within the pages.
1: I was hoping that, you know, sort of the longer form might give one space to have the two registers cohabit the poem you know sort of because if you try to switch from grave to humorous and I it's that it's all handbrake turns you know and it was nice having the freedom to actually try and modulate the tone you know sort of occasionally between the,
0: the comments. It's interesting the you just used that word co- cohabiting <laughs> sorry it's interesting you, you just used the word cohabiting for the two registers I've only had a very light read so far I've only just received. I um, oh, saw it's worth <laughs> the book but no, but I was really taken by the male and female characters who there's a conversation I suppose slightly gendered conversation that goes on
1: yeah there's a lot of men and women talking and uh, trying to figure things out
0: I really like that aspect and this idea of cohabiting or not or not being able to not even being able to sometimes occupy the same space because of a fundamental irreconcilable Differences,
1: and it's having that space to work it out and have the conversations, really, and you know. And I think sort of, which I think is incumbent on white blogs of a certain age, you know, not to be talking that stuff at the moment. Some of the conversations were genuine, and some I was having in my own head, you know. But they're all corrective dialectics, I think, you know.
0: I'm really interested in what's happened formally in this collection. Just as a little recap, I mean, your long love affair with the sonnet form is something that you've become very famous for. And your last book was an absolutely brilliant collection of 40 examples, very different kinds of examples of the sonnet. You've translated Rilke's sonnets. Sonnets have punctuated your previous collections. Your beautiful Waking with Russell is a workshop staple in the creative writing meetings in this country. I had a sense in your last book that there had been such a technical compression To that point where you just had to really, really focus in or get it out of your system. I don't know which way it was. How did that honed down quality of rhyme, meter, jump to this great expansive form that you've adopted
1: one might give the impression of being a lover of the sonnet form, but the reality was quite different. It was merely that the sonnet seemed to happen to one quite a lot, you know. And I do have a sort of interest in it, you know, a cold professional interest in how it's constructed. I like some of the things that the sonnet does. I have no feelings either way about the sonnet itself. But there are things that it can't do. And it wasn't just a sonnet, and haven't written that book of sonnets, it was that big technical treatise, and the last bit's about 300-odd pages, just about a metre. When I'd finished it, I thought, you know, maybe this means I'll never have to think about this crap again, you know. I could just set it to one side, you know. Sure, I'll come back to it all, but I just needed to sort of reacquaint myself with what it was like to write spontaneously in order to get all that technical stuff out of my head.
0: Can you describe or just say a little bit about the form that has ended up on the page? Sure,
1: it's just a long line. I guess, you know, sort of vaguely taking its cue from someone like the C.K. Williams long line, which is sort of, medically, it's not really a metered line. It's about as much as you can say in a breath. So it'll usually consist of three or four phrases and they all run on. They all take up, up to two lines worth of text. but it's, So it's more of a breath length.
0: It just seems really a, a very kind of versatile vehicle, I suppose. Well, it allows
1: you to say different things. I mean, it allows you to do, do things that have a lot of asides. It allows you to tell stories, you know, and it's just like, and it's hard to do either of those things if you're writing songs.
0: Obviously, it's a short story quality as there was to the episodes. That was another reason why it surprised me so much, because even before your book of 40 sonnets, I think your book before that was Rain. And that had become incredibly metrical, you know, and very, very tight in the line and the metre. It's an unmetered kind of line that you're now working with in this book, and it suits the material so perfectly. I was just remembering from your book, the poem, how I think when you're talking about the prose poem, you do express some scepticism as to the kind of viability of the form in English, do you want to say anything about the current trend for prose poetry, or what one critic recently has called the prosification of contemporary poetry?
1: I, ju- I think everything works. You know, everything fails. It just depends what you do with it. But there are some pitfalls with the prose poem, and it's to do with the sort of what the concept of the prose poem implies that people sometimes seem unaware of. And one of the big problems with a prose poem is it has to, if you like, demonstrate its poeticity by sometimes being more poetic than a poem has to. Poems can just be themselves, but unfortunately a lot of prose poems in many different ways are quite strenuously poetic in a way that I find really frustrating. And I kind of, nobody would ever speak like that kind of way, you know. And also for really obvious mnemonic and technical reasons, they're not memorable in a line-for-line way in a way that poems are. They can't be. They can't hook in in the same way because they don't use the same mnemonic system.
0: I agree um, with that. I, I find them harder to remember in the way that it's But I that's
1: learned. not to say they can't be fantastic. Of course yeah. they can. I could name ten great prose poems but that's not yeah.
0: Could be time for another poem here Don. Um, sure. Obviously I'm not going to be able to give any kind of synopsis here of your book but I can reveal that it opens with the death and it ends with a resurrection. And I thought perhaps we could ask you to read your poem about Mr. Death.
1: I wasn't quite as deliberate as it looks, you know, set sort venting of with a resurrection, but I did kind of want him not to die in the end for a change. I've read things before that have some sympathy for the character of Death, but there was something that I did want to say about this version. Death. His trick, by which I mean the way he'd convinced you of his earnestness, was to actualise at some random and unpredictable post, unruffled, immaculate, like he'd been there all along. Vaping at the turn of the stairs, taking a leak in the adjacent stall, or turning round from the seat in front of the empty mataday saying, Come on, we've been through this. And again, I'd get up and leave and mutter, I'm not ready yet. And he'd say, Okay, bud, see you tonight, knowing we all got worn down by this in the end. Before they kicked me upstairs, I used to work in sales. I still have a case of free samples and a an eye for an easy mark. One day he was working through some genre clichés to keep himself amused and I was closing the bathroom cabinet when I saw him at my shoulder. I shrieked, he cracked up laughing, I swung around and we fell into the usual threadbare exchange. But I caught him running the back of his hand across my Pima cotton towels and sneak a sidelong look at my new sonic toothbrush with more than just a casual interest. I noticed his Prada suit was a size too large and his floral tea cologne was Tommy Girl, though it smelled pretty good on him. It was then I really saw it, his weakness. I said, look, look, I'll do you a deal. No deals, he says, you know that. Hear me out, I say. It's legit. Give me another 20 years and I'll kick you out. I'll be your go-to guy. I'm serious. Knock down rates. He said nothing, but the sweat was forming in his upper lip and brow. So I got out the case and I did my old routine. I told him I'm practically giving this stuff away. It was tough to see him so easily played, so easily reduced, so worried and frantic. Me pulling out one thing after another, him suddenly wondering if he could afford it all, patting his pockets, wondering if I took plastic, wondering if he had plastic, what plastic even was. His arms full of all the cool new things he wanted, a black fedora, a snakeskin belt, a silk tie with a Mondrian design. But then realising he was technically neither salaried nor self-employed, a slave to his work, he'd always thought, but really just a slave, hand to mouth, hardly ever in the same town two nights in a row, sleeping on couches between gigs, everything he wore lifted from the closets of the dead, everything he ate, whatever the dead had left uneaten on the stove after he'd walked him to the car. All he wanted was a night off, a table at Cleo's so he could work through the card, and then go home to his own shit, some old jazz and vinyl, a valve amplifier, a good espresso machine, and a workout bike, and maybe a wife and kids too in time. But whenever he thought of them, or rather what they'd talk about round the big TV, the kitchen table as he made his famous chilli, or the school gate after hockey practice, all they could think of was him delivering the bad news as usual, the worst Daddy, what do you mean, I must leave with you now? Don't think for a second that death loves his work. Even though I couldn't stop, we both knew there was no way you could pay for any of this stuff. I was holding back the tears for him. Who wants to see their own death fall to such a two-bit hustle? In the end, I gave up. I hugged him. I said, it's okay, it's okay, I'll go with you. Just give me five to get some things and say goodbye to folks. And he was fine with that. And so innocently grateful when I really did come back, carrying a near new pair of brogues, a couple of good shirts and a nice blue jacket that I reckoned would fit him well. And I could see in his eyes that over the years he'd lost more than a few of us this way to this old play, and each of us had cost him like a life.
0: Thank you, Don. The theme of death that weaves in and out throughout the poems in the book, could you tell us a little something about that?
1: As has been pointed out, quite rightly and critically, the books tend to be a bit death-obsessed, but I always think, well, it's the same with every bloody poet, you know? I think it was Billy Collins that said, you know, death is what gets poets out of bed in the morning, you know? I think it was partly because I was indirectly addressing a whole bunch of death and horror that was going down over the last year and a half in my own life, trying to find a way that did it at a, at a slant rather than looking at it directly. And also sort of themes about redemption and renewal, all of which are actually predicated on there being a death of the self first, and what form that could take.
0: Then There's a real sense of renewal, I think, in, in this book. There's just such a sense of play and, I don't know, kind of letting loose Oh, good. Just yeah, enjoy- yeah, yeah. And, and enjoying the whole kind of narrative. Trouble Facebook. is, you
1: never know if anyone else is going to enjoy it. That's the trouble with license. It's very hard to know if it's just you having fun and if anyone else is going to find it fun. And there were a few poems that I was too close to and couldn't tell that they were fun only for me. And just like <laughs> no boring. I think there's a couple that I'll just bore folk who don't have a specific interest, say, in, in American billiards and hustling.
0: Or practising the guitar in front of whatever subscription services. You think people
1: won't be interested in that?
0: <laughs> is that what everybody's <laughs> no. doing in this country? Yeah?
1: Jazz theory and Netflix. So what's that to love?
0: <laughs> Something you're probably asked often is about all of the different, I suppose, professional hats that you have worn. So you are not only a renowned poet, you're an essayist, you're a critic you're a professor at the University of St Andrews a musician and i'm sure i've forgotten one or two others editor at picador how do you find time for the writing and how do you do you compartmentalize a space in which you can be the poet. You know? oh, I think
1: one tries, but in the end, it's just about what demand is loudest, I think, you know. And, and I'm not sure compartmentalisation is terribly healthy. I think what happens in terms of writing is that when one was younger, and it's, I always used to claim to write this way, one would do a thousand drafts and, and you'd be sitting there pouring over the thesaurus, trying to get every, you know putting every word in with tweezers but after a while you either know what you're doing or you don't and I think that does mean that the actual sort of act of composition doesn't take nearly as long as it used to so if I've got something to write about if I've moved enough to write something then I can do it much more quickly than I used to whether it's a formal exercise or not and that's the one thing that's changed and that means you've got to fill up the rest of your life with other stuff because your <laughs> apprenticeship is over you know because poetry's not a job. I'm suspicious of people who call it a job. I don't think it's a gig at all. I mean, I would definitely file it under Digital diagnosis. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so most of the time you know, spent doing other things, you know. And I think that's better for the poetry, that I spend much more time thinking about music or much more time thinking about being a dad or, or teaching or editing. It's the danger, isn't it? If you think of yourself as a poet, you're, what are you going to write about? And you get into this quite dodgy feedback loop where you start to write poems only as pretext to have conversations about poetry and they're just they're full of that stuff you know they're kind of literary exercises rather than something that engages with your life
0: and i suppose you know there's a lot more teaching of creative writing these days which makes the literary exercise have i suppose more of a place in our poetic culture at the moment one thing just off to the slightly to the left of that i just wanted to say when you say that your process has got much more perhaps targeted and quicker they've often felt that you need to turn up you need to be there in order for the poem to happen so that can be the thing that is difficult in terms of organizing your time and
1: roles yeah but it's interesting when you need to turn up you just do because there's an imperative and it doesn't mean that you're suddenly sort of, you're not doing any drafts and you're suddenly, you miraculously become this one-draft wally that can just bang them out and they're great, you know, and slap it down to it up. It's not like that at all, but it does mean that, you know, you'll, you'll give yourself over to it for 36 hours. I got a note from a colleague the other day, uh, but we were supposed to turn on some reports, and I know she's been stuck for a bit, you know, and she had a point coming through. And she just locked down for 48 hours to write the damn thing. And I'm like, Phew. you know, I know she'd do the same for me. And I was like, brilliant. That's the only way to do it. You just have to. And I think sort of employers have to take this on board when they hire <laughs> boys. That they're just going to go AWOL from time to time because there's no other way to write it.
0: Just have poetry leave, you know. Pressurise the government about that, I think. Yeah. In terms of the writing process, are you an on-screen writer or do you still write longhand or...?
1: No, I've been screens for years. I mean, it's partly because I've got a quite an easy relationship to the technology, but also because if you do a lot of drafts, I like to know they're all there. And the sort of visual metaphor works for me because it is sort of layered. So I like the idea of these strata that you can scroll down to, I like a roll of paper that's 100 feet long, and I can go right back to my early notes if I have to. Whereas if I'm turning the page, there's this false idea of progress <laughs> you know because i don't think of people say oh you know you got to do another draft because way wasn't right or it's all about getting it right it's not about getting it right it's all about giving yourself up to something changing because you're discovering what it is that you want to say it's not about sort of making a draft and it's wrong and you fix it It's completely the wrong metaphor it's about this thing rising up from this kind of primordial <laughs> mess somehow you know and the screen is a much better analogue to the way that my mind thinks about writing poetry. But John Burnside would tell you the opposite. He says, you know, you have to use a pen, you got to feel this sort of ink flow through your fingers. And, yeah, you people know? are superstitious, yeah, yeah, aren't yeah, they, yeah. about their own yeah. process? Quite rightly.
0: I'm actually asking you these questions. At, I suppose that very weird time, just right before you publish, is it March the book's going to appear? Aye, it's quite soon. You'll soon find out, then, um, how it's coming across. I mean,
1: it's just, you just kind of be thinking like that, you know. There is that lovely bit where you get the book and it lasts for about a week or so before anyone's yet to have an opinion on it. And when you're like, maybe everybody will like it. But it always turns out to be the same exercise in shame and humiliation. But <laughs> that's publication for you, yeah.
0: Well, Don, it's interesting that you say that because that leads me to another poem that really made me laugh in the book. <laughs> oh, thank God. It's got a little um, epigraph by Helen Donmore, is it? Boys and Their Reputations.
1: Hi, Boys and Their Reputations. It was something Helen said to me once and it always stuck with me. I thought, yeah... <laughs> Yeah, they're boring.
0: You've described it as an aborted tirade. That was much longer, yeah. It was a tirade. <laughs> and it was
1: just like, and it was me getting very animated about my one literary enemy. And the names have been changed. Although I don't know why. You guys. Monsterization, the hideous caricaturing of the other, often receives its clearest expression when its subject differs from us, not in kind, but by degree. This allows us to open up an easily affordable abyss, which is to say we use our very kinship to hate someone with whom we closely identify. Thus they become an efficient means of externalising our self-loathing, as well as the fear on which it is founded. All this is well known. Our intra-tribal enmities traditionally are among our most vicious, but what's often overlooked is the extent to which those who most despise themselves will identify their closest reflection as their perfect bête noire. For all that I have forsworn hatred, I am often animated by the hatred of others for me. I note with dismay that within the low-rent, high-maintenance world of poetry, or rather more specifically within its circle of male critics, I seem to be addicted to giving offence for someone so clearly desperate for approval. For example, this is disingenuous, it was always my intention to address the matter, I cannot understand why the minor English poet Alan Jacket hates me. Let me start that again. I cannot understand why the minor English poet Alan Jacket hates me to quite the degree that he does. I have maintained a classy silence in the matter for many years, but the trouble with silence is that, as with keeping goal, one's professionalism comes to be taken for granted, and recently mine has been positively heroic. No more. Cocteau once said that we have to know how far to go too far, and now that Jacket has finally gone far too far too far, he shall have what he badly wants, my full attention. Accordingly, I'm given up in the supernatural restraint routine that no one had noticed anyway, it was not its own reward. But since this is also a genuine attempt at rapprochement, I will try to write a strictly honest poem in deference to Alan, since he claims to prize honesty above all else. Although what bomber, as we call him, we don't really, actually means is that he expects to receive praise for what are mostly meticulous expressions of his disgust. But no one ever won a prize for saying what absolutely no one wanted to hear on matters after which absolutely no one had inquired. The reasons Alan has affected for his loathing of me over the decades of an entirely one-sided feud are all plausibly noble. I once slandered a friend of his. I am without grace, wit, or indeed any redeeming human virtue. My ugliness is to the bone. I am an unlettered, bald clown who insults the language every time he lifts the pen. But we both know that, true as all that may be, that's not what's really going on here. No. It all began years ago, back when Alan looked like Jojo, the amazing dog-faced boy and wore nothing but Ruritanian military uniform. Towards the end of his immaculately undistinguished tenure at Stuntney Press, he knocked me back, but wrote me a nice card noting my absolutely accurate use of the word calc, which I treasured at... Actually, no, no, I'm not going to do this. I've deleted, as my editor can independently verify, about 200 lines of laser-trained and often extremely amusing insult, which I will now lodge with my archive. This is a shame because, as I say, a lot of it was pretty damn funny, but my editor is terrified of litigation. Among his 83 red flags are things like, I appreciate this incident was 67 years ago, but Louis McClue will still be recognisable as Sidney Goods or Smith to those who know they're McDermott. Meaning we had to lose my reflections on Alan's childhood, in which I had some perceptive things to say, as well as my insight into the real reasons for Alan's animus, clues to which I provided in the first stanza. Furthermore, I also regret the deletion of Mexican homoerotic standoff, a phrase I believe should have wider currency. Alas, the high ground once relinquished is lost forever. And more to the point, I suppose, literally no one wants to read this crap these days if they ever did. So that was a colossal fucking waste of time, wasn't it? A phrase I am confident Alan will be unable to resist, deploying as the title of his next review.
0: Are those 200 lines really lodged with your archive?
1: Aye, <laughs> yeah, that's funny as well. You know, but they are probably libelists, you know, and it's just like, you know, so I want all the libel to have been committed on his side and not mine when the final reckoning comes.
0: <laughs> really, all that remains for me to say now is thanks so much, Don, for your wonderful readings and for talking to me about the book, which is imminent and to which we're all looking forward. Thank you very much, Don Patterson. Pleasure. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit poetrysociety.org.uk.